It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Am I excited about the 12th of December? Not particularly. The time for protest is over. It's time for leadership. And that is what this government provides. In every town and village in this country, Labour will be there giving a message of real hope where this government offers nothing. People have a very clear choice. If they want Brexit, they can vote for Labour or the Conservatives or the Brexit Party. And if they want to stop Brexit, they need to vote for the Liberal Democrats. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. Good afternoon, I'm Roger Hearing. And, uh, well, there's quite a bit to sweep up, but I, I have to say the election campaign, five days of campaign left... It's not feeling feverish exactly, is it? No, I've not got that feeling really at this point. Maybe when the impending lack of sleep starts to dawn upon us, a little bit of excitement, a little bit of fear even could come into it. But Brexit is very much the battleground today, isn't it? Jeremy Corbyn accusing the Prime Minister of misleading people over his deal. The Labour leader saying he's obtained a confidential report. We had a big summoning of all the great and good in the media this morning to a central London location. Uh, He says this report will drive the coach and horses through Boris Johnson's claim there'll be no border in the Irish Sea. He says the government's saying something very different in private. It says there will be customs declarations and security checks between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. It's there in black and white. It says there will be customs declarations, absolutely clearly. Meanwhile, Boris Johnson is saying that Labour claims on the Brexit deal complete nonsense. Voters should believe exactly what I say on Brexit. Meanwhile, the Tories are attacking, of course, the policy in terms of it being uh, being profoundly undemocratic. The Cabinet Minister, Michael Gove, is accusing Labour of trying to undermine the result of the 2016 referendum. Jeremy Corbyn is not only trying to have another Brexit referendum, but trying to rig the result of that referendum by giving the votes to people who, while they're cherished friends and neighbours, weren't given the vote in the last referendum and aren't voters in the general election. So plenty of mudslinging there. Well, I'm very pleased to say that joining us for the programme is Tim Bale. He's the co-director of the Marland Institute at Queen Mary University of London. Tim, thank you for joining us. Uh, so the next big event, of course, is the debate, the head-to-head tonight. Um, this with a, I guess you could say, significant gap in the polls still. What do we need to see then from Corbyn? Is there enough time in order to close that? Well, I think it's a very significant gap. I mean, most sophologists would say if the Tories are, say, seven, eight points ahead, then that points to a Tory majority. And at the moment, it points to a Tory majority. Um, 
Corbyn, I think, has very little time to close that gap. If you look at the last election in 2017, Labour's progress towards the Tory total of you know just over 40% was actually much stronger by this stage. Uh, it really doesn't look to me as if he's got anything left in his locker uh, sufficient to actually pull Boris Johnson down. And what's interesting is where the Conservatives are trying to move the debate at the moment. The, the, it's the Brexit thing. It's whether the, the referendum, who's going to be included on it. The word Brexit again and again, I lost count of the number of times a tweet from Boris Johnson has appeared on my Twitter feed saying, get Brexit done. I mean, it, it's, it's just banging on the same thing again and again and again. Yeah, I think you'd have to say the Tory campaign's actually been very successful in the sense that it gave people uh, early on uh, a steer that austerity was over. Uh, that uh, the Conservatives were going to pour some money into the health service, into policing and into education. And then it's kind of back-end loaded to, to reinforce this get Brexit done message, which seems to be the thing that's really cutting through if you look at what people who are conducting focus groups and opinion polls are saying. Um, and, I mean, obviously Labour have been trying to counteract that by talking about all sorts of things. We had the big bombshell on broadband. We've been talking about the railways and hospitals and everything. But then another concern isn't what they're going to do. It's whether they can actually do it. No, that's right. And that is another concern that is expressed in focus groups in particular. People like quite a lot of uh, Corbyn's promises, but they just don't see that the money is there to uh, do them. And they don't actually trust Jeremy Corbyn to be sufficiently competent to actually um, deliver them. And I think this kind of giveaway a day 2019 manifesto by the Labour Party probably has proved counterproductive. Now, it was very interesting because he was taken to task but on that very publicly by Andrew Neil on the BBC interview programme. Uh, I think particularly towards the end of that, uh, he, he was really... His promises were analysed to the point where could they be paid for? Would the maths actually stack up? And it didn't seem to. He certainly looked incredibly weak there. But of course, what's happened is that Boris Johnson has not gone on that programme. Joe Swinson has, Nigel Farage has, and there's been a bit of a clamour in the background. You know, come on, why can't you get in front of the microphones on that occasion? Uh, he said, no, they said, no, oh, no, he's done lots of interviews. But Andrew Neil is known to be a very forensic and quite ruthless uh, interrogator. Let's actually hear because what's quite interesting is Andrew Neil has now issued a challenge to Boris Johnson publicly to take part in a sit-down interview with him. Uh, he's the only leader of the main, main party now which who hasn't submitted himself to that. And in fact, very interesting, very unusually, Andrew Neil took time at the end of his latest show to set out a kind of appeal or even a challenge publicly to Boris Johnson to take part. No broadcaster can compel a politician to be interviewed. But leaders' interviews have been a key part of the BBC's primetime election coverage for decades. We've always proceeded in good faith that the leaders would participate. And in every election, they have. All of them. Until this one. It is not too late. We have an interview prepared. Up and ready, as Mr Johnson likes to say. Tim, it's a very unusual thing for a broadcaster to put that kind of thing out. Is that going to work? For a start, do you think Johnson will respond? Uh, I don't think Johnson's going to do it. He's gone so far, really, that I think it would look a bit ridiculous if he now agreed to do it, to be honest. And, I mean, the calculation is obvious. Uh, he's run a risk-averse uh, campaign. Um, why bother with this particular interview? Uh, those of us who follow politics are very closely, you know, maybe enraged about it. The BBC may be enraged about it. But you know, for the average voter, you know, they're probably not, to be honest, going to be even aware that this spat is going on. And as long as Boris Johnson therefore doesn't appear on television and, you know, drop some terrible bomb <laughs> during, the, during the interview, um, he's best off not doing it, to be honest. And I mean, we saw that sort of very risk averse campaign from Theresa May in 2017 
and it didn't go so well. Is it just a difference of personality? Is it the charisma that we always talk about that's carrying Boris Johnson through this? I think you've put your finger on it there, actually. Boris Johnson simply doesn't have to do the number of appearances and, and the kind of appearances that Theresa May has to do to convince people he is, quote unquote, a man of the people. Um, he just has that kind of star power uh, that I think convinces people that he has been out there. Uh, and to be fair, I mean, the Conservatives can argue that he's done an awful lot of interviews. He's done debates. Um, it's not as though he's been hidden away in a box like Jacob Rees-Mogg, for mm. example, who simply has not appeared after those words on Grenfell. But Jim, how much does it actually, does the personality, does the, the, the public image actually make any difference to the way people vote at all? Well, there is actually quite a lot of research evidence to suggest that leadership evaluations have become more important over the decades in terms of how people vote in the UK. We don't have a presidential system, we have a parliamentary system, but actually the leaders are useful shortcuts for voters who don't pay a great deal of attention to politics. And that's why I think Labour has to be very, very worried, because although Boris Johnson isn't particularly popular, Jeremy Corbyn is so incredibly unpopular uh, that, relatively speaking, he looks pretty good. And on, on the things that voters seem to care about, which is things like decisiveness, strength, um, and even patriotism, actually, in this election, Boris Johnson is streets ahead. It's interesting to see the Lib Dems reeling back on their whole presidential star thing as well. Joe Swinson not on the leaflets as much as she was at the start of the campaign. But let's keep it on on Labour. Is Corbyn the problem then? Because the policies tend to poll quite well, don't they? I think Corbyn is the problem. I mean, I, I, I agree actually with your earlier point that there may have been too many promises made by um, the Labour Party. But I think, you know, going into an election led by someone who the vast majority of voters do not trust and see as weak and incompetent is never going to be a good idea for a, a party. Uh, unfortunately, of course, you know, Labour is in the situation where the voters can't stand Jeremy Corbyn, but the members love him. And the only people who could have um, you know, done anything about their leadership problem were the members. And they chose not to do that back in 2016. Well, Tim, let me move you perhaps finally on to uh, the dog that didn't bark in this election, which is the Brexit Party, more than anything. Because right at the beginning and after the uh, Euro elections, there was a sense that this might be a massive political change. And yet, first of all, backing off from, from challenging Tories. And now it seems having high level defections inside the European Parliament. Nigel Farage, I mean, if ever there was a, a canny political player in the last five years, it's him. But he's blown it, hasn't he? Well, he's blown it in terms of the Brexit party. Whether he's actually blown it in terms of Brexit, of course, is the other question. I mean, in some ways, you can argue he's got what he wants. He's got the Conservative Party now as the heirs at Brexit party uh, doing the job for him. I think he'll probably be a little bit disappointed, you know, at his own personal performance. He, he's become a kind of peripheral figure, as you said, ever since he um, stood down those candidates. And the, the heir does uh, appear to have gone out of his balloon. Um but, you know, stepping back from that, you know, he still has achieved, you know, an incredible historic mission, really, you know, to turn um, the, the debate in Britain um, completely around and to see us out of the European Union, which is probably going to happen on January 21st. I've got to ask you something about campaigning, because one thing I've noticed this time round is that there have been no big billboards. There's no, bi no big bumper advert. Back in 2010, it was all those airbrushed photos of David Cameron. You couldn't move for one. And then Do you remember the Edstone? The Edstone. <laughs> it was the, the Ed Miliband yeah. in the pocket of, uh, of Alex Salmond. Yeah. This time, there's none of that. It, it's online advertising just taking over. I suspect that is the case. And of course, it's very tailored online advertising. So the kinds of things that will be going to different voters, we have no idea of unless you, you know, you go to one of these archives mm. that 
and shows all the adverts and you can do that but um, it, it's tailored visuals that will work with some voters and won't work with others and I think you know the days of the sort of mass billboard unless you've got something absolutely fantastic that you think will reach across everybody are probably over because it's interesting the stunts such as they are have been online stunts turning uh, a Twitter feed into a mm, fact check for a moment putting up uh, these montages of, of BBC presenters um, as on a Facebook thing that's really where the stunts have been this time. yes that's right and I mean campaigning is moving online I and mean, we have to stress that clearly you know there's still a lot of foot stomping and people are, are putting leaflets through doors and getting letters through their letterboxes as well but uh, online campaigning is becoming very very big it's not just Facebook now it's also Instagram and particularly for young people um, you know that's where it's at uh, so Twitter's important but nowhere near as important as Facebook for older people believe it or not uh, and Instagram is where it's at for, for younger people you know success when you see it or you think you do the people in the spotlight athletes actors artists but what about the people behind the scenes you know the ones who make it all happen the lighting engineers the sideline photographers the caterers they're small business masterminds and if there's one thing they have in common it's making their money work harder that's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Let's have a look at the stories that are making the news today. Well, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn are going to go head-to-head tonight in the final debate, TV debate before the election day. The BBC's Nick Robinson is presenting, and he's vowed to limit the time candidates spend delivering oven-ready. We're hearing that word again. Oven-ready mm. soundbites drafted and redrafted by their spin doctors. But before that, we're going to hear from two prime ministers, two former prime ministers, Tony Blair and John Major, headlining this rally that's organised by the Independence' final say campaign. They're calling it a full-throated roar of defiance against the prospect of Boris Johnson getting total power. We've had a little bit of speculation that uh, John Major is going to talk about voting for independent candidates but of course they're now limited by election rules in exactly what they can say. Uh, the other day we had Major hit out of Boris Johnson's Brexit deal. He called it flimsy and shabby. Now one of the interesting areas in all this is Uxbridge because of course it's the Prime Minister's constituency. More than 90 grassroots pro-Remain groups from around the country have written an open letter to the Liberal Democrat leader Joe Swinson urging her party not to stand in Boris Johnson's seat. The Prime Minister has a majority of just over 5,000 in Uxbridge and South Ryslip. They've also asked Labour to step aside in Eastern Walton, giving the Lib Dems a better chance of defeating Dominic Raab. Two marginal, but I think probably still safe seats. We'll see. We'll yeah, see. we were just discussing this. Um, it, it's tricky to see where the shockers will come. Have to wait. That's what election night's all about. That's why it's so fun, Roger. That's why I can't wait. <laughs> Indeed. Anyway, Indeed. got this story from the Scotsman yeah, it's as just, well. It's, it's an editorial, rather striking headline from the Scotsman. Uh, Tommy Shepherd, an SNP candidate, wrote it. Why Boris Johnson will be worse than Margaret Thatcher. In normal times, he said, I'd be talking about Edinburgh's Christmas. Times are not normal. Next Thursday's general election is arguably the most important in my lifetime. The stakes have never been higher or the possible outcomes more diverse. On the one hand, he says, there's a very real prospect of the most right-wing government ever. And yes, I remember Thatcher. The people behind Boris Johnson will use Brexit to disconnect Britain from mainland Europe and realign it with the US. Yeah, it's really interesting on that because we put this to some Tory politicians and they've said, oh, we've done all this liberal stuff uh, economically. And I feel like the term is more populist rather than right wing. We're in different 
terms now. But anyway, let's bring the conversation on to political parties and their memberships. Tim Bale, co-director of the Marland Institute at Queen Mary University of London, still with us. So, Tim, you've written a lot about membership. Talk to us historically, put this in context, how party membership has moved throughout the times and where, where are we now? Well, there was certainly a golden age, if you like, of party membership in terms of the numbers of people joining political parties in the early 1950s. I mean, the Conservatives at that point, believe it or not, had about three million members. Wow. Uh, and the Labour Party, including affiliates, possibly had more, actually, if you include the union members there. Um, that gradually drifted down uh, over the decades. There was a bit of a blip for the uh, Labour Party when Tony Blair became leader. Uh, but that actually soon dissipated. Um, we got to a situation where when we began doing the research for this book, we were thinking about, well, we're going to have to explain <laughs> why nobody's joining political parties anymore. And then along comes Jeremy Corbyn in uh, 2015. And you see this massive boost for the Labour Party, uh, which even now has about 450,000 members. It's and said to at one point have been the largest political organisation. in Europe. Yes, it, it, it is. I mean, the German, uh, the German Social Democrats are big, but it's a bigger country. Uh, and uh, you're right, Labour went up to over 500,000 at one point. And actually, the other parties have had uh, rises as well. So the Lib Dems are now about 105,000, which if you consider the number of people who actually vote for the Lib Dems, that's a very high proportion mm. of their vote. Um, and the Conservatives, partly because I think of the Boris Johnson leadership contest, when people knew there was about to be a contest and therefore joined to take part in it, probably around 180,000 and the SNP is over 100,000 as well so we actually have a very if you like healthy grassroots democracy scene in this country and there's a very interesting relationship in what that membership means because I mean we talk about Labour there and it was I think supporters uh three pounds I think was the, yeah, was the official yeah. joining yeah. fee so you could say well that's one of the reasons it got big and and were these supporters anything more than people who signed their name on a piece of paper but on the other hand you have historically at least the Conservative Party and a separate organisation, almost from the from the from the politicians themselves, a kind of almost a social organisation in itself. Yeah, and I think that partly accounts for why membership was so big in the 1950s. It was simply the lack of other social opportunities, if you like, and actually uh, putting it crudely, of mating opportunities. Well, there was the, <laughs> the famous, you know, go and play tennis at the Conservative yeah, Club, ab wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, whereas nowadays, you know, you really don't have to join the Conservative Party to meet someone of the opposite sex or even of the same sex, Let's get of tinder. course. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, um, uh, I think you know that's part of the reason why parties de declined over the time. But I, I think in, in terms of you know explaining this huge um, boost recently, I think Jeremy Corbyn in particular offered a kind of vision of socialism that a lot of people who had. Um, actually left the Labour Party during the Blair and Brown era were very, very attracted to, so came back into the party. And our research actually shows that about a third of those who joined the Labour Party, either to support Jeremy Corbyn or to protect him, as it were, when he was challenged again, um, were actually people who had previously been members of the Labour Party and now feel that they've got their, their party mm. back. Although the images of Jeremy Corbyn and, and these members are always of young people, actually quite a lot of them are, are middle-aged, public sector retirees. That's it. I remember speaking anecdotally to a, a lot of older people who are CND types back in the day left under Blair and now now are back. But let's look at what this is doing to these parties, because if you have this huge Corbynite surge in what was formerly a Blairite party, it makes it very broad. And you see a lot of axes as well. It's not just these political extremes. Of course, it's Brexit as well. And then also the class shifting you're seeing within Labour. Are these parties getting too broad? Are we approaching some sort of split maybe? 
Well, uh, they're not getting that broad in ideological terms, actually. What we're seeing is, if you like, a polarisation between the two sets of party members, if we're talking about Labour and Conservative, that mirrors the polarisation that we've seen along the, the Brexit divide, for example, in the UK. If you, if you, you know, as we've done, do surveys of these members, they are chalk and cheese. They just think completely differently on almost any issue you can name. So Labour Party members are incredibly left-wing uh, when it comes to the economy and when when it comes to the role of the state, social spending, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and also incredibly liberal when it comes to things like immigration, censorship, education, law and order. The Conservative Party members are the complete opposite. Um, very, very socially conservative. They are throw you know throw the lock them up and throw away the key. Uh, they are you know very, very anti uh, you know opening uh, Britain's borders, and they are actually um, pretty right wing on the uh, economy as well. They don't want the state involved. They want low tax, low regulation. So these are two tribes. But also there are tribes within tribes, which I find very interesting on an organised basis. I mean, obviously there is now momentum. Uh, and I'm speaking to John Landsman, who's the founder of Momentum, one of the founders of Momentum, very much feeling that he's it's more than just being a member of the Labour Party. He, it's, a, it's a movement within a movement. And historically, that's also been true within the Conservatives. There have been little ginger groups, if you like. Uh, so, so you can actually have, have a quite a, a dissipating force within each party moving in different directions. Yeah, and I think some people within the Labour Party would certainly take a, a rather less benign view of Momentum's role. Uh, they feel that Momentum has to some extent sort of captured uh, the Labour Party and captured the Labour Party membership and driven it in a direction, as they see it anyway, away from the voters. Uh, and that's one problem that party members always in some ways present to their parties. Um, they're an incredible asset, obviously, at election time. We can talk about campaigning. Um, but they do tend to take a rather more extreme view on all sorts of issues than than the, the party's voters. And in some ways, that's a good thing because they anchor the parties ideologically. They stop them just becoming kind of vehicles for celebrity politicians. But on the other hand, they do constrain parties and somehow push them in a direction that they don't necessarily want to go. And I think one of the fascinating paradoxes for me of British politics over the last 20 years is that the members of the party who nominally have least influence uh, in terms of you know any kind of formal say in the party, I mean, members of the Conservative Party, have certainly helped push that party from a, a soft Euroscepticism to a hard Euroscepticism and a soft Brexit to a hard Brexit. Mm. And, and what about their objectives then for the party? Because you've written for, for Bloomberg Opinion in the past about why the Conservatives are so good at winning and it's about they adapt and they pivot to win elections and that's their goal. Whereas within Labour it feels like there are many who just want to reshape the party and they're not so fussed about getting into government. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. When you think about uh, Labour Party members and you talk to them, uh, they don't necessarily see any uh, kind of zero-sum game there. They actually think that what they want to do with the party will make it uh, more appealing to voters. They genuinely think there is a kind of latent appetite for socialism and social liberalism out there, uh, which the party under Blair and Brown sort of failed to tap into. And once they can relieve, if you like, the false consciousness of the electorate, then uh, they will come into their inheritance. I'm not sure it's going to work at this election anyway. <laughs> but what about the future of party membership? I mean, are we going to see mass membership 
resurgent? Are, are people, because people can join online, it's in a way much easier. They can participate in voting and doing things like that online. Will people, see, young people see the point of being a member of political parties? Well, that was one of the predictions that was often made, actually, before we had this, you know, blip up uh, in, in recent years, that people were more interested in single issue politics, particularly young people. They didn't really like the whole kind of institutionalization of parties and saw them as a bit kind of sclerotic and almost dinosaurs, really. Um, but I, I think maybe what members have been able to do to and for the Labour Party may inspire some people to think well they can make a difference and certainly if you are a Conservative I mean you basically chose the Prime Minister of this country you and a hundred thousand you know of your fellow members made a massive decision now I mean I think you know that's worth 25 quid a year right it's quite significant, isn't it? And what about going ahead? Um, is this two-party system, which essentially it still is, is, is that going to stay? Uh, well, we had a referendum on the electoral system back in 2011. And I think without electoral system reform, it's going to be very, very difficult for any third party to break through. I, I wouldn't necessarily rule out a, a third party coming in and replacing one of the the two main parties, you know, more probably the Labour Party. But I think for a third party to actually vie with them for, uh, you know, a third of the seats, say, at Westminster, I think that's so difficult under this electoral system. And, and whether we can have another referendum on the electoral system so soon after we've had one, I'm not so sure. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.